They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. kid yeah he was like similar to geronimo a fearless warrior that couldn't be and there was an element of mysticism because geronimo you know he was bulletproof they couldn't shoot him bullets would go through him bro he could read the code the army code the army would send signals flash signals to each other over long distances to communicate in morse code he didn't even know morse code he knew what they were saying to each other because he was psychic bro like geronimo was was uh, i mean wizard uh, avatar take your pick chaman take your pick i mean all of these words are pretty much the same thing they just mean you know they're maybe more specific for certain people but no he was a powerful dude and that's why people in the army screamed geronimo's name when they jumped out of the plane and parachuted into world war ii this is a mantra for power that's why people people yell geronimo when they jump in the pool doing a cannonball you know now they yell cannonball but geronimo right you've heard people do that before I'm glad that we're doing this here one because you always you always bring a stack of notes in your head. I don't know if you actually take notes, but you're always very prepared in these conversations. That's why I love doing Illuminati confirmed with you. Welcome to the One on One Podcast with your host. Juan Ayala. X on two of my Google pages that had 15 <laughs> tabs each. I'm starting to record. I'm not close to it. I'm recording the audio. Well, I wanted to tell you before we started that I have my camera set up so we can look at these books, uh, this book, if you want to see documents and pictures of Skull and Bones. Yeah, dude, I love it. I can see it. Alright dude, here we are, welcome to the one on one podcast, Mark, how you doing sir? It's an honor to have you on here, one of the biggest shows 
on the internet one of the biggest podcasts ever it's such an honor to be podcasting with you right now bro how you doing today dude this is so weird it's like the first time on your show but the hundredth time we've ever done a podcast together <laughs> right that, that is weird i, I kind of I, like I, i've been wanting to do an episode with chris but i'm like we podcast all the time already but not like solo you know what i mean so here we are we were talking about on the phone today and you mentioned skull and bones and i had there was a a cut when i did the episode with, with exertus he brought up skull and bones too and I wanted to, I wanted, I want to let you get into your thing. If you want, plug your shit for people so they can find you. But I'm gonna give you a little piece of information that I don't know if you had, and I don't know how true it is that Exertus told me, which I thought was really fucking interesting. About skull and bones. About skull and bones, yes, sir. Are we gonna start with that? I mean, we could start with that, bro. Plug your stuff, and we'll, we'll get into it, bro. Yeah, yeah, I want to get into it. I have a lot. I'll turn my camera around and show you this big, huge whiteboard full of notes that I'm staring at. And then I also have my book right here. Um, for those who don't know, I am one of three co-hosts on a show that Juan uh, really is the brains of called Illuminati Confirmed. That's right, Illuminati Confirmed. And it's Juan uh, and Chris and myself and... Yeah, you know, I got a, I got my own podcast, but we're not here to talk about that. Come on, man. We're here to talk about Skull and Bones. And Skull and Bones is a research project that has spanned, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say it like that. I have been studying Skull and Bones for about 10 years now. Uh, way, way before I ever even listened to a podcast, let alone had my own podcast. And I don't know how much we've talked about this, Juan. You might know parts of this story. Um, maybe you don't at all. So it's a good opportunity for us to to continue getting to know each other. Um, and yeah, I you know, the story starts with me in community college. And I happen to go to community college in New Haven, Connecticut, the same place that Yale University is and the same place as Skull and Bones is. And I've learned a lot of weird stuff. And uh, yeah, there's so many different avenues we can go down with this conversation. Uh, because as you know, this project is sort of culminating into a whole storyline. And I'm not going to reveal really what we're going to do with it yet. Uh, podcast or documentary or whatever it's going to be, series. But it's it's a lot. And the question that I have that's been driving this is why New Haven? Why New Haven? Why did New Haven become a place where so many incredibly powerful and wealthy people were funneled through? What made New Haven ripe for that? You know, because you and I have been looking into these concepts for a long time. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of ley lines and energy vortexes and things like that. So that was my question is like, I've been studying skull and bones for a while. I know most of the political stuff. I know most of the main like famous people that have been a part of it, but I wanted to know where this all connected to the other stuff that I was researching, like the native Americans that lived in Connecticut and you know, what they thought 
of the land and where they considered sacred spaces to be. And maybe some of that was taken into account when Skull and Bones created what they created, or maybe even just when Yale was established. So the story can go in so many different directions. We can talk about New England. We could talk about the Native Americans. We could talk about just Skull and Bones. But I'd like to start with my story first, um, after I learn what you learned from Andreas Xertis. So I love everything that you've uh, been, been saying so far. And, uh, you know, with Michael Wan, he, along with homie Romy, really, that he came down. He's, he's told me he told me yesterday that he's going to be coming down in December again. So hopefully we'll be linking back up here in, in some months. But really the work that Michael Wan was doing with the the Susquehanna alchemy and all this stuff where, you know, I remember you told me one time, look in your own backyard, right? So I did exactly that. When homie Romy came through, he's like, bro, let's look into so-and-so here in Florida. And when I start looking into Florida, there's a bunch of occult weird things that are going on. So, you know, how, how you're saying you're looking in the area that you're living in, like why New Haven you know, why this area, the indigenous people, you know, all the horrific things that they did to them. So, yeah, I love what you're doing. And hopefully we can continue to do something like that, because I think it's important to really know where you're where you're at and where you're, you know, where you're from and what it is about the energy, especially ley lines is 100 uh, percent one of those factors. So the thing that I, I did the episode with Exertus and, you know, Exertus just goes on and on when he's he's doing his thing. You know, he's he's it's it's real fast paced you know, putting out information, boom, boom, boom. And I, I brought up the idea that speaking of Florida, the occult Florida, where when they were digging through and making the railroad system, they would come across burial sites of the indigenous people where they would give the bones away as souvenirs to the workers that were working the railroad system. Okay. They were building the railroads and they would come across a mound, whatever they're digging it up because they have to put the railroad through it. And they would give away the bones. You have the ancient Egyptian belief that if you have the head of a prophet, it prophesizes to you. That's what Baphomet is. So I, I brought up the idea of Baphomet to Exertus. And I also mentioned how for some reason during the 17th, 18th century, there was this obsession with, ha with having a relic of an indigenous person. Right. So either a, a skull, Geronimo's skull. Or any bone. And did you know that Geronimo was stationed here in Florida in the panhandle at a star fort at one point? Geronimo, before he was transferred over to South or North Carolina, which I found very interesting. Again, looking into the occult history of Florida, which we do have some star forts laying around the state. So I came across that information. You know, it was like the famous uh, warrior Geronimo was stationed here. And I was like, holy shit. And there's like, it's got hauntings and all this stuff in it. So the information that Exertus told me, he was like, yeah, the skull and bones, their whole thing is that when one of their guys is dying, they hold the skull while tripping on fucking acid or any psychedelic in order to transfer information into that skull, right? So I had no idea about that, but it made me think about the crystal skulls where we know crystals hold information we know there's various skulls all over the world for, from various people. It's like the OG USB drive. Like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm about to kick it. I'm about to die. 
let's do this ritual where I'll hold this skull, you know, take whatever ceremonial cocktail, psychedelic cocktail. I'm able to tap into something through the Akashic records on this ley line that we're in, whatever. And I'm going to download my information, my consciousness into this skull. You have the ancient Egyptians obsessed with what preservation of their carnal bodies for what to come back later to download their information later into the body later when they come back from the afterlife. Like what's the whole thing with that? You know what I mean? I remember one thing in particular when they were teaching me in school about ancient Egypt that the the ducks on the pyramid, you know, those two ducks that go up like that, that they were for the soul of the Pharaoh to ascend through. And I've always said that the the pyramids duck, are, duck with a T, not a K, right? It, yeah, ducks like D U C C T. Yeah, the the water ducks, the air ducks. They're like, hey, you know, they're 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 quacking their way out of the pyramids. So I was like, okay, whatever, dude. So that that always stuck with me because I've always said that the pyramids there are vibrational amplifier. I have a friend of mine who's laid in the box in the king's chamber, and he said it's a it vibrated so violently that he needed to get out when there was people chanting within because they don't let you chant within the pyramid, bro. They say don't Damn, Juan. you know, you know, people who live in Russia, you know, people who live in Egypt. Damn. How many people do you know, bro? Oh, I got I mean, I know a guy who knows a guy. So this guy, he, he <laughs> does tours in Egypt, which I've been wanting to do forever, dude. But they're like 21 days long. I can't just call out of work for 21 days. I got a family. You know what I mean? So there's that, but you know, there, there are different beliefs and I don't know if you, if that's true or not. Is it true that before the, the elders of the organization died, they held the skull in their hands and did a ritual to pass on the information to that skull. Is that true at all? Did Andreas Exertus share a source material for that? We did not. It was towards the end of the episode, man. We were wrapping it up and he just, you know, again, he just threw it out there and I was like, wait a minute, what? He's like, yeah, dude, that's what they're all about. I'm like skull and bones. I got to talk to him. That's why I hit you. I was like, let's talk about skull and bones, bro. I want to mm. learn some more. Yeah. And that's that's the really uh, um, profound downfall, but also upside of Zertus. And this is in no way shade on Zertus. If he hears this, he knows I'm complimenting him very highly. But he's so jam-packed with information that sometimes it just Tommy gun fires at you and you have no idea <laughs> which bullet get the kill shot, you know? It's just like, bada, 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 you know? So that I am very curious to have a conversation with him about. I'm, I'm upset that when I had him on my show, he didn't bring that up. But my, re, my, my suspicion is that after that conversation, he started looking deeper into this topic because I asked him to and I asked him to join me again in the future after he had done more research on this group so boom I'm very excited to follow up with him I cannot uh, corroborate that nor can I provide any evidence for that uh, you're telling me this for the first time so yeah no I think that the crystal skulls that we find in Meso and South America are extremely ancient. Mm -hmm. So whether or not this concept of skulls holding information uh, is, you know, true or not, it seems like there's some sort of archaeological basis for this. Because to your point about a USB drive, 
It's like, what is a crystal other than an information storage space, right? In a way, is storing information. So, I mean, I would imagine the crystal skulls probably do the same thing. And considering that our skulls are actual minerals that have a, you know, mineral quality of themselves, there are certain crystals that are a part of our brain's anatomy. We have magnetite in our brain, uh, as well as a couple of other particles that can be best described as minerals. So whether or not those remain in the skull, who knows? Um, Is it me, Mark? But do you, (laughs) I feel that water tastes better when it's in a glass, glass, right? Is it me or is that an actual thing? No, that's real. I mean, the, the whole idea of water storage is that you don't want particles to bleed out into your water. So if you're storing it in plastic, there's naturally going to be, um, you know, a porous nature to plastic on a molecular level that would lend to a dissolution process, whereas glass on a molecular very tiny level is uh, very durable and wouldn't break down to water like that, you know, like sea glass and stuff. Like the only reason sea glass turns out like that is because the sand roughs it up. You know, water doesn't actually like erode glass. It it stays in the ocean. Um, But anyways, I don't know enough about physical sciences to tell you whether or not there are like crystals in the skull, but, that would be my guess. We don't need a physical explanation for everything, though. And that being said, absolutely. Like, a skull is such a powerful thing, man. Even just looking at it without that concept of consciousness transference. Think about how unique your hand is. Think about how unique your thumbprint, your fingerprints are. Your skull is going to be the same way. Your skull on a geometric level precisely is not the same measurement as anyone else's skull. I would go and venture to say that. I could be wrong, but I would imagine that given how many uh, unique variations there are of the human body, you know, fingerprints being the best example of that, I would say that your skull probably holds some kind of value or energy to it. Um, But then again, you know, like you and I are not materialists, so we don't need to speak in those terms. I like to start from there to take everybody along with us. So when you stare into the eyes of another person, you're staring into their skull, you know, remove the flesh, remove everything else and the skulls there forever. Right. So I think it's incredibly powerful. You have this concept in Shakespeare of holding a skull and staring into it. You have this concept with St. John the Baptist and the Templars Uh, You have this concept with the oracle. Um, Certain oracles in history have been associated with the underworld and skulls. And then we also have Golagatha. Golagatha, right? Is that where Jesus was? Yeah, yeah, where Jesus was crucified. And uh, there's like billions of skulls there, apparently. Then we have the catacombs in Paris where there's just lined with skulls. They have walls of skulls almost seems purposefully uh, placed like that. So I think there's this sort of esoteric uh, line and thread that describes like that esoteric side of it. And I'm so glad we started there because that's somewhere where I need to focus more, I guess. And it's funny because that's like how the story kind of began for me too. 
with the skulls. And you know Thomas very well. Um, he made this awesome comic book here. I should, I should just put it right there. So Geronimo's grave um, was robbed. His skull was taken. His femur bones were taken by Prescott Bush, grandfather of George Bush Jr., uh, father of George Bush Sr., and brought to New Haven from Oklahoma and has been a part of whatever rituals they're doing, maybe what we just were sort of discussing for, you know, almost 100 years now. And as a student at a community college in town, I was fascinated with anthropology. I was getting into smoking weed a lot and introspectively smoking weed, which led to me just because I had always been interested in learning, but I'd always had a tr trouble with my attention span. Right. And like I, I could read stuff, but I could never like finish a book, you know, and that always bothered me as a young man in high school and stuff. Cause I knew I was smart enough to retain information but there was just so, so much going on. And when you're that young, you know, you have so much energy anyways, that it's really not your fault to have such a high attention span. I think it's been uh, pathologic pathologized. Now we think of it as like a bad thing, but it's just a part of being young. Uh, but cannabis really steadied my thought process out and allowed me to stick with a thought for a really long period of time. And that was really helpful for me. Right. And I didn't understand quite why this was happening, but I started to understand that the quality of information I was learning at this age had something to do with the cannabis and whatever process was going on. I was enlightening myself, so to speak, light, like L I T E, like light version of enlightenment, you know, like not, not anything intense. Like I wasn't like a monk, I wasn't being <laughs> celibate or anything like that. Um, but I was clearly on a path of learning and the first like major synchronicity that I can even remember sure there were others was running into this gentleman named Amos who happens to be from Arizona happens to be of a, a culture that carries this deep wisdom not just of plants but of the world around us in a way that the the old world once recognized now again materialists we have to start from there unfortunately but that's only because our modern understanding of things has been so hijacked by materialism and i had always expected and suspected that to be a big problem and a big barrier for me uh interacting with other people because i've always been very set on the old ways i love nature i love being out in nature i like the unchangedness of nature so I, I always looked for a philosophy that matched that. And Amos saw that in me. And we started talking about cannabis. We started talking about Native American history. And he explained to me that he was homeless. And the reason why he was homeless was because he moved to Connecticut on a spiritual pilgrimage. And I'm like, well, what, what's that? At that age, I'm like, homeless. That's the worst thing that could happen. Like, I don't want to be homeless, you know, like I want to have a home. I live with my parents. I'm safe. I'm sound. I go snuggle up in my bed, you know? So that was like kind of shattering my perspective as well. Like this dude's voluntarily homeless, you know, like it's not cause he's a drug addict or alcoholic or something. He's just, you know, voluntarily homeless. So he tells me about more of his story and how he 
learned about Geronimo and the real story of Geronimo and it inspired him to move to New Haven. And even though he had no money and had nowhere to live, he, he said that if I come here and I pray for Geronimo, something good will happen. And, and this is like my mission, you know, it's, it was a, it was a mission that went beyond physical desires. It was a mission that went beyond physical needs. It was a spiritual pilgrimage to connect with Geronimo. And he connected with me and many other people too. I wasn't the only person who he knew at this time. He actually told me like, you know, there's a sort of invisible college of people that were learning from him <laughs> during this summer. Uh, and I've never met most of those other people. Um, and it's a really interesting thing because I started learning these things from Amos in a very like firsthand kind of way. And it disillusioned me with school. I said, you know, these teachers that I'm learning from in school, they're just stealing my money. They're just wasting my time. So I dropped out and I, you know, continued going and hanging out with Amos every now and then at the park. And he taught me a lot, man. It started with the Geronimo story, but then he taught me about the history here in New Haven and how the green, the very green, uh, you know, another word for park, the green. I don't know if you guys have town greens in every town, but in New England, every town has a green. And New Haven's green is pretty famous. It's a historic landmark um, because New Haven was built in the 1600s and it was built in a nine square grid with the center square being a common area with grass and a field and a lot of elm trees. And it was a burying ground. It was an ancient burying ground, not just for the colonists, but for the Native Americans. The actual park itself? The park itself. That's okay? crazy. So the park itself has no, um, for the most part, it's, and we could screen share a Google image of it so you can see what I'm talking about here. Um, but yeah. It's almost laid out like over... in a magical squared kind of way, almost <laughs> like a Enochian magical exactly. square type of way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So what's really strange is <clears throat> there are over 6,000 dead bodies buried under the green. Okay. And like you just kind of said, like, wait, it's a park people. People have music festivals. People just sleep on the ground there. There are benches, there are paths, and there are three churches that were built in the 1600s on this specific spot of land that the whole town was centered around. So the whole town This is New Haven, is centered. This is New Haven, and if you bear with me, I'm, I might be breaking up a little bit here because I'm trying to open up Google Earth. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the... I'll show you the overlay of of New Haven and give you a, a, a deeper perspective of what this place is really like. Um, let me share my screen here on stream. And to That'll add to a little easiest. bit of what you were saying at the beginning, you know, we're talking about crystal skulls and this occult practice of having skulls. Also, there there was a rumor that Manly P. Hall had a copy of, I forget which library, of Aleister Crowley. And he said that he kept it always in the top drawer of his desk because he wanted to know, he wanted to always be reminded of, 
the lowest levels that the human intellect could go to. And I said that to Thomas and he said, yeah, dude. That, and that's also why they keep skulls on top of their desks because they want to be reminded like, Hey, I could go down to that level eventually. And you have rented a cart. Uh, I think therefore I am his skull went missing. They raided his tomb. And for the longest time, his skull was missing in a private collection. So it's very weird. And this is, this is really weird. Wow. And I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this here one. Cause you always, you always bring, uh, a stack of notes in your head. I don't know if you actually take notes, but you're always very prepared in these conversations. That's why I love doing Illuminati confirmed with you. Um, but compliments aside, you can see now pretty clearly this is the green, right? And I used to hang out right here. This was my spot right here. I would walk over there. I would sit behind the center church where there there is a gravestone behind the center church. It's the only like visible gravestone. And even weirder, just like the catacombs in France, underneath the Trinity Church is a catacomb. So they had to raise the level of the ground in order to separate the common area that people are walking on from the burial ground. But if you go inside this church, you can still see on the, in the basement the original gravestones that were on the original level that the, the park used to be on. So anyway, so we have our sort of, uh, you know, obvious things that stand right out pentagrams right you see the pentagrams mm -hmm. with the paths yep. so that is clearly something right there's something going on but chad Stucky, who i recently had on my show he took a look at this and he said mark check this out there's an eight-sided fountain right there which is also significant the octagonal building and shape that's something that goes back to uh rome and it's a structure uh, hold on one second. It goes back to Pythagoras too, bro. And that, that tell me about it. The, the, well, the number eight to them, the octad, it, it signified infinity. It signifies it's the number eight. So when you turn it on its side, it signifies obviously lim, uh, unlimited, you know, unlimitedness. And the number eight to the Pythagorean symbolized love because right. Mm. What's the whole thing? Uh, do what thy will, you know, love is the law of the land or whatever the fuck they say. And because love is the number one thing that hold, they believe they held everything together. It's the number one thing you're not able to uh, describe. You're not able to describe love. When you look down at your newborn son, you feel that you have this feeling of like, holy shit, I would die for you. But you're not able to mm -hmm. just put that into words unless you've experienced it. You know what I mean? So right. that's the number eight. Uh, I, I believe number eight was also the Eleusinian Mysteries number uh, for why. I don't know, but that's what they, again, this is through my research. Uh, the Eleusinian Mysteries uh, number was the number eight. I believe either number eight or number seven. I can't recall, but I'll, I'll look over my notes. But yeah, the number eight and, I, and that right directly across from that. If you look, it looks like the, like a, almost like a sigil too. I forget. Where? What so across from the other side of the fountain. So not the pentagram on the other side i'm gonna look for the for the sigil but that one on the other side so it's like almost like a completed pentagram mm. 
I'll, I'll look for You're it. saying over here? Yeah, on the other... Uh, no, no, no. Right across from the... There, there. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I've had a lot of theories about this because they're not perfect pentagrams. They're not like a perfect pentagram shape. They're, they're kind of looks missing. Looks like the sigil of Lucifer, bro. Look up sigil of Lucifer and you'll find it. It looks like the sigil of Lucifer. No, oh, yeah, I know exactly which one you're talking about. That top one is for sure. And we'll get into the sigil side of it. But I just wanted to point out that that eight-sided um, structure is like this sort of Tower of the Winds in Athens. And uh, mm. Thomas Jefferson was very um, famous for building these octagonal structures Um the, you can find a bunch of different houses and they're all sort of designed uh, in that time when Jefferson was alive, built in that time and, and designed, inspired by him. Um, oh, one last thing that I'm going to show you before we stop screen sharing here, maybe we'll come back to the screen share later. It looks really cool. Uh, I, I must say, Google... Earth has really gone out of their way to make everything look like a video game. I don't know if you noticed, but like the 3D uh, that they apply to the, the like the image now just feels like I'm in Grand Theft Auto, which uh, hopefully that day will come where <laughs> they do some kind of game like that. But So this building here, you see the three um, pyramidal rooftops? Mm -hmm. And this right is in there. front of Yale, right? Yeah, so Yale originally started right here, okay? So if we zoom out a little bit, the nine squares are still around. They're right here. They haven't been altered. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine squares, right? Um, this is considered ninth square, and we'll get into that in a, in a second. Uh, but yeah, the first, this one right here, this is old campus. Uh, Yale has expanded uh, almost into other towns now. It's so big. It's it's a big part of the city now. Uh, they have this side of the city is all like hospitals, see school of medicine, uh, and there's a couple hospitals around the emergency room there. So, you know, this is all part of univer the university campus. You know, they have uh, all sorts of buildings throughout the city because uh, they're really made New Haven, New Haven. I mean... It's a university town. One of the, it's the second university in the United States. Harvard was the first. Yale is the second. It's very old, and you get that feeling when you're there, man. It's got an old vibe. And like I said, I used to hang out right over here. Phelps Gate is right here. Um, Phelps is an interesting guy. So anyway, so this three pyramidal rooftop right there. That's one of the tallest buildings in the city. It's the tallest building that surrounds the uh, New Haven Green. Got some loud ass and birds Amos, in the background. <laughs> the crows are are crowing. They're they're joining in the conversation. Um, but the yeah, they are kind of loud. I'm hearing them on my end too, um, in my mic or in my headphones. It's Anyways, all, it's all good. Amos told me that this building here is where a very strange ceremony is held every 322, every March 22nd. Uh, the graduating members of Skull and Bones come up to this tower. 
they slice up a living human heart and they each take a piece of the human heart and eat it. Uh, you can see that this is the vision trail, the path that goes right next to the south side of the building. And then right here is a very strange new art structure that almost kind of, it's they're just like tubes going in different directions, giant aluminum metal tubes that are red uh, or steel. I don't know if they're aluminum or steel. But it's a very massive structure. It's like 30, 40 feet tall. Um, right in in between these three buildings, the courthouse, the social security office. Uh, we have an FBI building not too far away as well. There's a, a local FBI branch right here, funny enough. But uh, yeah, I've always thought of this building as kind of, or this art structure as kind of like a heart because of the way that like the mm -hmm. tubes are shaped. It almost looks like valves and like, you know, around a heart because it's red. So it's kind of weird, you know, maybe they're eating hearts up in this building. Who knows? I don't have proof for that. All I know is uh, what I can find in books. That's why I have fleshing out skull and bones right here. This is an excellent book for anybody who's curious. Uh, but I also have my secondhand information and my, my experience, you know, and Amos didn't just teach me about skull and bones. He taught me about cannabis and plant medicine and, and how to be a man, quite frankly. I mean, this is at a time when I was, a, uh, you know, 17, 18, 19. When I met Amos, those three years were sort of when I spent the most time uh, with him. I haven't really hung out with him a lot in the past few years. I did visit him very recently, only two weeks ago. Um, but, yeah, so he kind of came into my life synchronistically and filled a role, you know, because... I mean, my family thinks I'm crazy. That's the name of the podcast. So I don't really get a lot of support from my uh, from my real father about this stuff. And I'm blessed to have made a lot of uh, really great connections with other male role models throughout my life. And Amos is, is certainly one of them. So let's go and zoom out just a little bit and then we'll get off of this screen share. But New Haven, like I said, when it was founded, was founded in this nine-square grid, and they created the New Haven Green to hold exactly 144,000 people so that in the book of Revelations, when you know Jesus comes back, they could all be picked up and saved off of this green, right? That's the idea. Not only did they build it like that, but like we just went over. It's an ancient burying ground. The Native Americans who were called the Quinnipiac, which that word became the word Quinnetikat. It's the same word. Uh, the Quinnipiac Indians basically sold this land to a guy named Theophilus Eaton for 13 coats. Um, and a couple of other people were there as well. But they designed in the shape of this nine square grid and they called it new Haven, AKA new heaven. Right. And, um, it's no coincidence that I'm the Eastern rock, which is one of two very, um, sort of magnificent looking. They're not extremely tall, but compared to the shoreline, they're pretty high up. These two rocks, Trap Rock Mountains are on either side of New Haven or New Heaven. And one of them has Mary Magdalene on top. 
on this Soldiers and Sailors monument. There's Mary Magdalene interesting. right there. And what's interesting is that New Haven is on the same line of <clears throat> longitude, right? Longitude is the north-south measurement. It's on the same line of longitude as the Andes Mountains. So what Peter Shampoo has told me is that there is a serpent energy, a ancient serpent spine that goes through South America, through the Bermuda Triangle, through New Haven, up to the Canadian Shield, and to the North Pole. Right? You see how there is a straight line that goes from there through New Haven all the way to the southernmost point of land in South America. There is a directly straight line, and it's no coincidence that in New Haven they have all of the native artifacts from the whole North and South America. In the Yale Art Museum and the Peabody Museum, they have thousands of artifacts from Machu Picchu, from uh, Mesoamerica, from Southwest United States, and of course up in the north of Canada and everywhere else that Native Americans left a trace. Um, the Yale collection is one of the largest collections of Native American artifacts, and one of their, I think the sixth president of the Yale College was a a man named Ezra Stiles who wrote a lot about the Native American culture and their spiritual perspective. Um, but before we finish, because I keep adding things on and then saying, all right, well, one last thing. So when you look at the nine square, does anything come to mind for you, Juan? At the nine squares? Mm-hmm. Oh, what I mentioned to you earlier, Anakian magic style. You know, square magical squares, but usually six by six. Right. You know, uh, the so key, the magical squares are too. not. The magical squares are not only and always six by six. You see, different magical squares have different values. So a three by three magical square equals fifteen on all sides when you run the numbers one through nine, and fifteen is the number of. Saturn. So we have Saturnian magic being encoded into the framework of this city. And not to mention, uh, Brother Zerdis mentioned how we have this, you know, ritual that the Skull and Bones do near the death of one of their members. Well, upon death at the funeral, every Skull and Bones member is presented with a sickle and a shaft of wheat so and that's left on their grave so if that's not saturnian folks i don't know what is so anyways we we got illuminati um, confirmed yeah they're confirmed for sure we got a lot going on here brother and uh and yeah i thought that was fantastic and you know what else really like tipped me off to this and it's still a little foggy and again, remember I said how I wasn't quite sure if these paths here are, you know, for um, to represent pentagrams or what they mean. Well, if we're going to talk about this square grid as a nine square grid, then you can imagine that each of these lines are connecting two points. So you can make a word or a code 
with a nine square. Right? So let's say we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Each of those numbers has a corresponding letter value. And then we go ahead and draw the number that we want. And those lines become the intersecting paths here. So if that has any meaning or not, I have yet to fully dive into. But the reason why I had a suspicion that the nine square was set up in the arrangement of the Saturnian nine square is because this grid was oriented to the West, which is a common practice in those times. They did not orient maps to the North. They oriented them to the West because either the West or the East. So where we would see nor the North side of the map on a map today would have been either the East or the West, right? Yeah, so I've they shifted it for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And if we do that here, and then we run the numbers of the Saturnian nine square grid into this, what they call ninth square is right here. And this is exactly where ninth square is. Whereas if you went and just did it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine would be there. So my guess is that it's not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's the magic square grid that we see when we look up that pattern uh, and I have it saved, I'll just stop screen sharing. And it's, what do you think so far? It's the law of reversal, right? So I have here some stuff pulled up for you because you mentioned Saturn, which obviously I'm very fond of uh, the, the number eight, because we have the octad there, that, that eight sided shape, which is very important because it's not a four-sided shape which four is the number of the demiurge right formation he created the entire universe but we have here the pythagoreans began to study the nature of love in an effort to observe its functions in the universal law and they either discovered were told or in one way or another found out that the number eight was the great secret number of the eleusinian mysteries the number of the great mother of mysteries the number of isis and diana the great goddesses of uh, Athenians and also we have here the number eight is composed of two fours four or the tetrad uh, represents the divine power involved in the creative process the lord of the material world and also that part of man which is involved in the psychic mystery of generation the demiurge or secondary creator for as the universe creates the soul so the soul in turn engenders the body it forms it and molds it into the likeness of itself. Any human being is a tetrad, a body and soul. And we have here the octad becoming the symbol of the two solid bodies. Uh, solid bodies becomes the number of sympathy. So there are different uh, s symbols for the number eight in that shape. In the two of pentacles tarot card, this is the symbol of continuous unbroken motion. So you have the aspect of ceremonial magic, which they're doing. You know, it's all about continuation. The number eight to the Greeks also signified the Ouroboros. So you have reincarnation, the idea of them holding the skull, perhaps to reincarnate their consciousness into that skull or live on or whatever it is. Because you have certain practices of different sorts of homunculus all throughout all of history where they want to escape the Ouroboros and they do that through uh, becoming so enlightened 
uh, to a certain extent to where they breed. Maybe that's their way of escaping the reincarnation, samsara, you know, transferring their consciousness to this skull so it stays in the carnal realms with with its breath with with their brethren in order to not have to redo the cycle again you know I, I like where i'm at now so i'm gonna stay here with my brothers so here it is before i die i'm gonna do this ritual you know uh again ceremonial magic way that the the one building the the that structure that you showed me reminds me of a portal if you look at it from you know google makes it look kind of distorted but it looks like a portal you know what i mean so you have that aspect to it too and for those that are wondering like oh well you know the directions and all this stuff that's why it's a cult they're not gonna just plane out and come and say hey you know this is actually the direction that you're supposed to look at it from it's like no it's gonna be occulted so if you look at the esoteric directions you know the four cardinal directions they you know back then they changed quite a lot you know what i mean to the ancients they were very different and the name that you said of the indigenous people, that's where the name Connecticut comes from, correct? Right. So the Quinnipiac people lived in what is now New Haven, North Haven, and everything. You got to keep in mind, like, a lot of times, and I'm going to pause myself every now and then because there are motorcycles passing behind me, but... um you got to keep in mind that these people, they weren't necessarily nomadic in the sense that they had no home, but they were sort of like what we would call snowbirds, right? They would, they would move to a warmer place when it was winter and they would stay in a cooler place when it was summer. And this is new England's one of the best places you can be in the summer, even the further North parts specifically, because it stays nice and cool. We get humid, you know, in August, but for the most part, it's a pretty comfortable summer. And it seemed like a lot of them were traveling up here using the four rivers, right? These four major rivers, the Connecticut River, the Hudson River, the Delaware River, and the Susquehanna River. You mentioned Michael Wan, who has been a big inspiration for myself and homie Romy as well. Now, when it comes to the Quinnipiac people, they, like I said, they were pretty much given like a deal like, hey, stay out of this area. You could, you know, do whatever you want. And over time, you know, that changed. And we'll get into that maybe another time. But that that is something I'm focusing on is the whole aspect of treaties and writing treaties and how that was a big part of not just Yale, but the colonist mindset at that time. But yeah, the Connecticut River was called the Quinnipiac River. It just means, uh, you know, and we got to keep this sort of with a grain of salt because you have to keep in mind the people translating these native languages back then were very biased. So they also didn't really care too much to be accurate. They kind of just <laughs> summarize things. Yeah, and it's just, it's sad because, you know, unfortunately when these two cultures met, one of them seemed inferior compared to the other and i don't think either was superior it was just a matter of uniqueness and two play two cultures clashing and that's the, the other side of the story that i hope to untangle because our idea of the native americans and and their relationship with the new england colonists is very filled with myths and you know that whole thanksgiving thing was bs but yeah the quinnipiac 
that's the name of the state, Connecticut now. Um, and it's just interesting that, you know, New Haven itself wasn't even a part of Connecticut for the first 30, 40 years of its history. It was its own colony called the New Haven Colony. And it actually had land all the way down in Philadelphia. There was a group of New Haven colonists who traveled to Philadelphia and claimed that for the New Haven colony before the town of Philadelphia was established. So, you know, if we want to connect everything back to Michael Wan and all that, it certainly fits. Then here's the other angle. So the Native Americans that Michael Wan and Ross Ben were talking about, the Lenape, the Lene Lenape, that's the same group of people that were up here in Connecticut. They all had different names because they were from different areas. They spent time in different areas. They considered their name like, like if I met you and never met you before you, you said you're like, you know, and I don't, this is not where you live. So I'm just making up a random example, but let's say you said, Oh, uh, hi, I'm Clearwater, Florida. And then I said to you, Oh, I'm, I'm uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, you know, like Mm. that's how they, introduce themselves because that's how they thought of themselves you know like who are you people well we're the people of this place right so and they they did travel a lot too which is like okay so it's not as simple as oh they only stayed in that one area that they were named after um but yeah there is a sort of naming magic that goes on too where now you have quinnipiac university you have you know all of these towns that are native towns, names, native words that have been transitioned into English words. Uh, the, all the names of the rivers, right? Naugatuck, Housatonic, uh, and on and on and on. The only exception is the river, the river Thames, which is in Connecticut, and it's named after the Thames River in London. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see those similarities as well. But I was going to pull up that uh, magic square thing here. I feel like it's it's, uh, it's a little rambly, and I'm sorry, but you're you're doing me a big favor by helping me organize my thoughts here, you and all of our listeners. Yeah, no, it's perfect. I like doing dry runs of the material that I if I'm going to do a presentation, but I'm I'm looking up here. I'm trying to connect some dots where we have the the Parsons family, right? Jack Parsons they his his grandfather of like nine generations was a one of the founders of Springfield and Northampton in the 1600s but and I looked up how close Massachusetts is to where what we're we're talking about who's the founder who Parsons Parsons grandfather by nine generations and his his grandmother as well was the witch of Northampton and she was the jury of that that trial I guess you could call it was the had the same peers from the the Salem witch trials so she was convicted and see she was sentenced to like 10 weeks or something like that because allegedly she was talking to the devil but obviously it's coming you know related to the guy who literally tried to summon the devil and they were doing all this babylon working and it connects to, to enochian magic as well that's why i'm i'm familiar with it because they that's what they were doing for the babylon working ritual enochian magic right so that i will say you know springfield northampton they're both on the connecticut river uh northampton's close to i don't know if it's directly on the connecticut river 
it might have been in those days that most places were organized around a body of water. So, yeah, there's a connection for sure. The first witch trials happened in Connecticut. Um, some of the first hangings happened in Connecticut. The whole witch trial thing got kicked off in part um, by the guys at Harvard, actually. Um, and then, yeah, some of them went on to become the governor of Connecticut. Mr. John Winthrop the Younger actually was an alchemist, and he was the first governor of Connecticut, the first governor of the Connecticut colony. Um, did I say second earlier? I don't know why I said second, but he was the first. Uh, he could have been the second, but and, he, was, and, he was early. And also, when you when you were talking about how they when they settled there, this the New Haven, right? You have the New Atlantis. You have this utopia, almost like a again the the one hundred and forty four thousand number, almost like if it was like a, a New Atlantis, a new mm. like an utopia that they wanted to live in. That's kind of freaky. Right. So this, before we leave the magic square topic completely, this is what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. This is the arrangement where all the numbers equal the same sum, no matter how much you, which direction you go to add them up, right? Three plus five plus seven equals 15. Nine plus five plus one equals 15. Eight plus one plus six equals 15. You get it, right? So mm -hmm. that, that's just the way this magic square magic works. And they most likely built this into the town green itself. And like I said, if we go and put this over the nine squares, this would be the ninth square, which is the only square in town that they even mention. It's not like you go a block over and they say like, welcome to seventh square. No, they <laughs> only call it ninth square. That's the only one, which is interesting because it is nine squares altogether. Uh, and they talk about the, ninth square itself well you have the now, ninth gate we, and i can also break down the symbolism of the number nine for you if you'd like stick with me for a sec so if we turn this on its side so that the nine would be uh, where the seven is and the five is where it would be and the one right so we turn it on the side like we do for the north south east west thing that i was describing and the five is in the center where we see the pentagram symbology mm -hmm. five and the one would be where Yale College started, the beginning. The Monad. That's where it all started, in that one square where Yale College, the old, they call it the old college, uh, is still standing to this day. Um, and Geronimo is in that uh, arrangement as well. He is in that first square within the tomb. So, yeah, man. And then there's also like a restaurant named Geronimo in square seven. So wow, yeah, it, it is interesting that they have a restaurant called Geronimo's. <laughs> it's like a slap in the face, huh? Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the town uh, map in that time. And like I said, it's oriented to the West at the top, right? So normally when we look at a map today, the northern border, which is right here where my cursor is, would be on the top side. But in these days, they didn't do it that way for whatever reason. So we would have, uh, just like I showed you up here, just imagine it upside down, nine, five, and one, right? So that's kind of the magic at play here. And also one, five, and nine are interesting because they're kind of like the three, like mid, like 
one is the beginning, five is the middle, and nine is the end of the original numbers. And you know how important that is, you know, to this whole magic Alpha and stuff. Omega, yeah. Every every you know word, every letter has a numerical value. So yeah, man. I mean, this is kind of uh, a bunch of other pictures and stuff that I'm organizing here in this Telegram chat. But yeah, it is. Uh, very strange that they would build this in this way. I don't. I don't find it strange at all. I mean, I think it's it's according to plan, right? We have the number nine, which is it represents man. It represents the number of limitation. It's the sperm. If you look at number nine, it's it's the little sperm. And so it was also according to the Eleusinian mysteries. It was the number of the spheres through which the consciousness passed on its way to birth because of its close resemblance to the spermatosa, a spermato, spermatozoon. The nine has been associated with germinal life. Uh, man is the nine twelfths of a, of a circle, nine months in the womb. Man falls short. He is the incomplete circle. So this whole idea of, it's very interesting that they have drawn him on the number one right because the symbolism of number one the monad and on the topic of john d his monas hieroglyphica where a monad is a a thought from from god and john d in particular was trying to come up with a symbol that would encompass all the metaphysical the spiritual the sciences everything into one so pretty much what he was trying to do was deconstruct reality itself this is why Tracy Twyman talks about that we are in, you know, John D is actually the demiurge because of the, he committed some alchemical experiment and we're in his reality. Bro, think about that though. What you just said before about the number four, D is the fourth number in the alphabet. D is the first letter in the word demiurge. I mean, shit. <laughs> hey, I mean, it, may, hey, Formation. it makes sense. It makes sense to me, bro. It makes sense to and me. If you consider that John D was kind of the first when we talk about this plan for New Atlantis, right? He was kind of envisioning this idea of uh, the English Empire before anyone had even really had that thought. Mm-hmm. And what does Michael Wan and Ross Ben show us? That they started on the 40th in a 40 by 40 house with 40 men for 40 nights. So we got this four symbolism all up in the founding of this country. As we know, John D was a part of that. And what I want to show with my overall like narrative, the arc of it is how, yes, we had an American revolution, but the English establishment remained in this country through Yale, through Harvard uh, and their connections with Cambridge and Oxford and this picture I'm showing in the corner here is from 1874, New York, Harper's Weekly. And it is a man with a sash that says communist with a button with a skull and crossbones symbol right there or emblem. And behind him, it says committee of safety. So they're already using those sort of meaningless sort of uh, deceptive phrases, right? Like we see with like the public uh, or what's the World Health Organization that's actually the World Poison or 
organization. And uh, yeah, so it's interesting to see these sorts of ads uh, at this time. You know, there was a time in our country, sadly, where journalists were not sadly, it's sad that they're not still like this, but mm-hmm. there was a time in our country when journalists were actually journalists and they covered stuff like this. It's, it's surprising. You can find really interesting stories about skull and bones if you dig deep enough in the newspaper archives, uh, one of them being a story of Chicago businessmen hunting down a fugitive named the Apache Kid. They shot him, left his body under a blanket and came back a few months later and took his skull and bones and sent them off to the Skull and Bones Society at Yale <laughs> as if as if they were a research group of some sort. Well, you know what I mean? It was an indigenous person, right? The Apache kid, yeah. He was yeah. like similar to Geronimo, a fearless warrior, warrior that couldn't be stopped. And there was an element of mysticism there because Geronimo, you know, he was bulletproof. They couldn't shoot him. Bullets would go through him, bro. He could Wait. read the he could read the code, the army code. He the army would send signals, flash signals to each other over long distances to communicate in Morse code. He didn't even know Morse code. He knew what they were saying to each other because he was psychic, bro. Like Geronimo was. Was he a was, wizard? Uh, I mean, wizard, or avatar, shaman? take your pick. Shaman, take your pick. I mean, all of these words are pretty much the same thing. They just mean, you know, they're maybe more specific for certain people, but no, he was a powerful dude. And that's why people in the army screamed Geronimo's name when they jumped out of the plane and parachuted into World War II. What the you know, that's fuck, why, bro? It's crazy. Yeah. This is a mantra for power. That's what why people the fuck. Why people yell Geronimo when they jump into a pool yeah. doing a cannonball. You know, now they yell cannonball, but Geronimo, right? You've heard people do that before. In movies, the Tropical Thunder, I think, was one of the movies where like, Geronimo! And I think yeah. uh, the one with Jack Black and them, so it's in Hollywood. But I didn't know that about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ignorant to the whole Geronimo topic, obviously, then the things that I've stumbled across. And the I have the Seminole and Osceola tribes here, the Timakua people here in Florida, which were giants, uh, allegedly. And again, it's very interesting that you're bringing this up, but I did not, I didn't well, catch on that the, aspect. That's the the thing, you know, a lot of people, when they get into Native Americans, they have this, or at least, you know, get into the concept and the culture and like trying to learn and understand more. They get this idea that like, oh, well, there's this group and there's this group and there's this group and they all do different things. Yeah, that's true. But in reality, before the colonists came and split everything up, they were all one body. They were all one culture. You know, they shared the same Mayan calendar. It wasn't just the Mayans calendar. It was the Indian calendar. It was everyone's calendar. They have evidence that people, you know, up in Nunavut were using the same calendar that the Mayans were. And people all the way down in Chile are using the same calendar in ancient times, not recently, ancient times. So, you know, when we talk about different groups of people all around, we got to keep in mind they were trading with each other. They had, you know, goods that only came from Mesoamerica that they've found all over the Mississippi Valley, up here in New England, out towards the Pacific Coast. So, yeah, I think, you know, as interesting as 
each individual group is, that tends that, you know, idea tends to take the value away from or the truth away from what the Native Americans really were. And that's part of the magic, this idea of categorizing them like they're some sort of animal, you know, like keep in mind there for 200 years, (laughs) you know, 200 years ago, we'll say that makes more sense. But 200 years ago, black people, Hispanic people, Native American people to white people, not to me, but to white people at that time or European people at that time, <laughs> they were not considered human beings, which is this fucked up thing to even think about, you know? And uh, far be it from me to go and, and play the social justice warrior bullshit, but I think that's part of the social justice warrior bullshit is to get people to forget about the atrocities of the colonization and think that it was all, oh, these mean Southern people or, oh, these mean racist people that aren't here now. No, man, they're all here. They're in, they're the elite. They're the establishment, you know, and that happened in New England first. It happened in the Southern states as well, and that's not my forte because that's not where I'm from. But, yeah, it happened here in New England, and that's what I'm keeping track of, you know, from the Plymouth Colony to the New Haven Colony. These colonies came in. They set up shop and they basically couldn't survive without the Native Americans, right? There's several different stories of Native Americans offering not only just goods, but lessons in how to farm and what to do with the land because it was a different type of land than the Europeans were used to. It had different uses, you know, there's different things that they could have learned how to eat and it was only possible that they would do that with the help of the native americans so that's been forgotten this whole lie about thanksgiving has been established by the harvard and yale think tanks and oh everybody got along and the native americans couldn't stomach our plague viruses that we brought here so they all died it's not that simple yes there were plague die-offs there were illnesses that hurt the Native Americans, weakened them, and killed them. But the weakening was what really did it, because if the Native Americans weren't weakened by these illnesses, they would have probably got together at some point and said, hey, let's start fighting back. And a lot of them did, which is why we have King Philip's War, we have uh, the French and Indian War, where certain Native American groups were on the French side and others were on the British side. And here in Connecticut, we have the Mohegan sun casinos. Well, the only reason why we have Mohegan sun casinos is because the Mohegan tribe said, okay, we'll take your side British and the British and the Mohegans fought the Pequot and the Pequot all were killed, but the Pequot were the destroyers. (laughs) That's the name. Pequot means the destroyers. So even the Pequot didn't belong here in Connecticut. And you're like, huh, the Native Americans didn't belong? It's so complicated, man. You have Mohawks that were coming down into Connecticut and causing all kinds of trouble. So the Native Americans that lived in Connecticut were already dealing with all different groups of people uh, that were Natives that were causing threats to them. So when the British and the Dutch and the French all started coming in, They started making alliances and making deals and saying, well, hey, if you want to trade furs with us, 
help us go kill our enemies over there. You know, it wasn't like one contingency of people trading with one another. That was true. They were, they were trading with one another to some degree, but there are some real bad hombres back then on both sides that would, you know, come around and, and fuck shit up, right? Like the Mohegan, uh, they were all set up. They had a nice little spot set up, but the native Americans that lived further West along the Housatonic river, they couldn't really get off like the Mohegans did because they were constantly on guard from attack. They had all these like high mountains that they would live on along this river Valley so that when the Mohawk came, they could signal to each other, Hey, watch out, get your you know men ready the Mohawk are coming and they're going to either kill us or take everything we have. So it's a, it's a complicated history. It's a bloody history. And a lot of people also forget that there is a time in United States when nobody moved past what we call Satan's axes, right? So I was mentioning Peter shampoo earlier and his ley line that he's showed me the one that connects Peru and New Haven Nobody and the Canadian moved past Shield. This line you said? There is a line, not the one I showed you, but the one I'm about to describe. Uh, and it was called Satan's Axes back then because everything west of Satan's Axes was Satan's land. It was, you know, to the early religious zealots who thought the Native Americans were devil worshipers, it was all considered Satan's land. So. You know, that's why we have all these sacred Native American sites that are called Devil's Den and Devil's This and Devil's That, right? That's where the name gaming also comes into play, too. But Satan's Axes is this ley line that runs from Mexico all the way to Boston. So it goes through every major city on the East Coast. And that's not by accident. You know, they were following this ley line and building along it because the people that came here, the Masons that came here had a science from the old world, how to follow and measure these energy lines. And they built, you know, Washington, DC, Philadelphia, New York city, New Haven and Boston all along this line that also connects with the pyramids in Mexico. So I mean, when you consider that, it kind of brings like a sinister energy to this ley line because I think we've talked about this on other shows. Ley lines are like conductors of energy. They carry energy from one place to another. So if you go and kill a bunch of people on a ley line, that energy gets spread along that ley line. And what happened at those pyramids in Mexico, right? People were sacrificed at the top of the pyramids. Their hearts were cut out. What were we just talking about in New Haven? people's hearts being eaten at the top of that tower. So there's a, a connection here that goes really deep, man. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, we haven't even gotten into the espionage, the drug smuggling and the whole secret society aspect of skull and bones. I'm just kind of laying the foundation here to show you why skull and bones would emerge from a area like new Haven. Uh, it's an area that has a history of mystery. I want to talk more about this Geronimo thing. I'm, I'm, I looked up some, some stuff here where he had a vision 
And he was talking about power is everywhere. It lives in everything. It might be known through a word or come in the shape of an animal. We all have power, but some tap into it into different rooms. Power speaks to those who listen. The greatest thing a person can have in Apache belief is power. And that's how he supposedly went into the desert, had a supernatural vision, did a prayer, and he was promised to not be harmed by the bullets. No gun will ever kill you. I will stop the bullets of the Mexicans and guide your arrows. So it was after cutting his hair. He burned the, the belongings. He decided to have ventured off into the desert. There alone in the starkness of his desert surrounding, he held his head in his hands. So holding the head, the skull, in his hands. And he wept bitterly. Suddenly an audible voice spoke to him. So, and again, I've talked about this before where you have the RH negative, the, the haplogene X group of these indigenous people where they're more tapped into the supernatural that's how you get the skinwalker and you got all these different supernatural aspects metaphysical the wendigo the wentico the you know all these different beliefs it's black magic for the indigenous people now i'm not saying that geronimo was was doing black magic but he was i mean you know and they there's a there's this belief that in the desert you're talking about satan's land the devil's land well, where was Jesus tempted by the devil? In the desert, right? You have these areas of vast openness, the Everglades, these the Saharan Desert, whatever desert you have, it's that's where the jinn live, right? These evil spirits, that's where they live. The, this is where all the, you know, these demons live, these open areas. That's why I believe in these things where they, where we're not so... I've heard it put in a way where we're not supposed to be there, right? Because it's there's this supernatural aspect to it. Almost like when you take psychedelics, they say the reason that you see these entities on psychedelics and they look at you funny, it's because you're not supposed to be there. Well, there's certain energies where you're not supposed to surround yourself, right? So this is how we get... I believe this is how we get these all these stories about, again, the skinwalker and all these things to scare children from going out into the open areas or anything like that last night i was watching a a i think it's called love sex and robots or something like that on netflix and it's like these different animated series like these different animated episodes and in one in particular it was called the grass and this train stops in the middle of this field and there's tall grass all over like around the outside it's the middle of nowhere and the the guy that's the locomotive conductor is telling the guys like he's like, hey, can I have a smoke? He goes, yeah, but don't go wandering. And he starts following these lights in the grass. And it's almost like the children of the corn type of thing where when you go into the into the grass, into the tall corn stalks or whatever, you don't ever get out type of thing. So apparently there's all these spirits trying to drag people into the fields. And it was people who were trapped inside the fields that would become these monsters and just keep dragging more and more people in. So I think that there are places like that around the world where they've been cursed by the indigenous people of the area because you're desecrating their burial sites. You're coming across burial sites and giving the bones away like souvenirs to the workers. If that doesn't bring any bad juju, I don't know what the fuck will. Is it that they're cursed or is it that they're not in right relationship with the land? 
you could look at it from both ways. Absolutely, you could say that they're not in the because well, let's know? think about let's think about power and what you said about Geronimo. When you come to a place of spiritual knowing, you realize that the material world is not where the truth is. It's not where the light is. It's not where God is. That's not it, homie, as Chris would say, right? That's not it. That ain't it, you know? The material world is what we've been taught over time to consider powerful. What do people think? What does the average kid think right now about power? They think Jay-Z. They think Elon Musk. They think Kanye or whoever has a bunch of money or does some kind of mainstream accepted famous thing, right? So that would be power. But in, in Geronimo's days, what was power? Power was a spiritual connection, not just to God, but to your higher self, to your highest version of yourself, to the highest version of who you can be for your community. Because that's what was important in those days. And we know the power of eight. We know the power of a community. I mean, shit, the power of eight, right? That Lynn... McTaggart, what, eight people who are all thinking in unison, right? We're, we're living in Tower of Babel days where nobody's in unison, not at least in a, a good way. They might be in unison in like a drone bumblebee kind of way. But the Native Americans, in my opinion, and this might be false, some people might be shocked by this, but in my opinion, the Native Americans were living closer to what we might have considered people in the Bible to have lived like. And that's not to say they're primitive. It's just to say that they thought of the world as God's kingdom in the truest sense. So that's been corrupted in a major way. And we as human beings have lost our ability to connect with the natural world, God's kingdom, because we're trapped in Satan's prison or whatever. Um, And, I think that's why we feel cursed when we're in these places that are responding to our energy. They're responding to the fact that we are so inverted that instead of receiving blessings, we're receiving curses. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when you put the batteries in backwards in your device or something, right? You have to put the plus and the minus the right way. If you flip them around, the device doesn't turn on. And even worse the device might bust. It might break. I I mean, batteries are pretty safe nowadays, but if you put some old school batteries in backwards, you might cause some kind of crazy science experiment, right? So I think that's what we're talking about here is like we as human beings have lost our connection to the sacred space that we reside on, this ancient landscape that has not been tainted by war and massacre. It's certainly gotten closer to that, over the past however many years. But I think that's a a part of it is like there are these big battles that get commemorated and their energy gets anchored in. And then those become haunted places, right? Mm -hmm. This whole concept of like a burying ground. What is thermodynamics, bro? Energy cannot be created or destroyed. So Mm. that's the origins of evil. That's how we got. And is it not transmuting that energy to go and give respect to the dead? Yeah. By, you know, you're like a conduit helping that being come back to life in in maybe in a reincarnative sense or maybe just 
in the simplest sense of like they're not forgotten. Um, but I think that's a big problem, especially when we go to New Haven and focus in on the green. There are homeless people doing drugs and sleeping and having sex on the green. Should that happen in a place where people who were ancient are buried? No. Does that happen in a cemetery? Probably not. Not a, at least not the ones that are kept well kept, you know, you don't just let anybody go and like roll around on your grandma's grave and do crazy shit. But like in new Haven, like there's been occupy wall street music festivals. I mean, Bernie Sanders gave like a huge speech on the new Haven green uh, a couple years ago, you know, 2016, obviously. Um, yeah, so a lot of a really big things happen. And Yale's a, a huge school. It's a very influential school. So a lot of important people have walked across those grounds. And we're talking about St. John. We're talking about the tomb. Uh, there's a skull of St. John that the Templars used. Well, Skull and Bones, right down the street, they have the crypt of St. John. And it's not St. John the Baptist, but it's a different man by the name of John who played some sort of role in history, and he was buried in their cemetery for whatever reason. And it's strange because he wasn't living in New Haven at the time, but they made sure that his dead body was shipped to New Haven to be buried in this spot. So he was chosen to be John the Baptist, at least symbolically. And yeah, his crypt is there, and... Skull and Bones is just the first of nine different secret societies that are still in existence here uh, in Yale. You know, Book and Snake is the other one that's pretty interesting because if you take the word Skull and Bones and you reverse it, at least the acronym, Book and Snake, right? B-S-S-B. So we have this sort of rhyming going on. And and the other group that's pretty prominent is Scroll and Key. And that is, you know, a lot of people that have gone on in like the film art entertainment world have been writing world have been a part of scroll and key. If I'm not mistaken. Another thing that Exertus brought up was the Mormons and it was like a scroll, right. That he said was like the key to understanding everything. And those, you know, a secret society called scroll. There's the wolf's head society too. That's right next to those. But you have, again, the law of reversal, which we know Crowley talked about inversion, uh, transgression. You have these these also weird magic. Do you know, do you know what a wolf's head is? No, I don't. It's a symbol for the son of a mason. The head of a wolf is the son of a mason. The head and of the, a wolf is the son yeah. of a mason. Yeah, it's an ancient symbol that, and I just learned this recently from who I don't remember, but the. Unk. Actually, I think Nathan Lee Miller Foster taught me that. Shout out to Nathan Lee Miller Foster. But um, the Ankh is upside down, and there's a wolf's head on it. So, yeah, that, that wolf's head lodge, I've actually been inside of it. Um, this is a part of my story that I we didn't even get into yet, which is I was a delivery guy for a bakery for a couple years in New Haven, And one of the clients that the bakery had was Yale. So I would go and deliver pastries and bread throughout Yale. And one day I dropped off some pastries to this um, weird building that's kind of attached to the older building. And I noticed the older building and I was like, oh, that's really 
interesting. What what did this used to be? And the, the lady said, oh, this is uh, the old Wolf's Head Lodge. Do you want a tour? And I said, yeah, of course. So she took me around the inside of the Wolf's Head Lodge or what it used to be Wolf's Head Lodge. Now they have a different building on a different street, much closer to Skull and Bones. But yeah, it's interesting. The The ceilings were very high and they had a balcony overlooking the dining area, which was strange. I don't know what that kind of ceremony they would be doing with a balcony overlooking a, a table, but you can imagine they had some pretty weird meals, possibly. <laughs> I don't know. Um but yeah, it's it's definitely a part of like my life that I didn't plan for. You know, I never was like, oh, I'm going to be a bakery dude. Jesus Christ! The fuck was that, bro? It sounded like gunshots, man. Jeez. Talking about, I didn't know this is going to be part of my boom boom. <laughs> Damn! Sounded like some gunshots. Those were not like firework booms. That was like a boom, boom. That was, we've been hearing fireworks all week. That's the first time that. Oh, it's near 4th I've, of July, so. Yeah, but I, like that's the first time I've ever heard a loud bang at this apartment that's actually like shook me. I don't know. That Maybe just because I had the headphones on and I heard it through the microphone. But yeah, that was either really close or a gun. Anyways, I don't live in the safest area, so it could be a gun. Um, but anyways, let's get back to let's get back on topic here. Um, yeah, I didn't plan on on being a bakery delivery guy. I actually met an old friend of mine who started the podcast with me, my buddy Jay. He was on the podcast for a couple year a uh, couple episodes. Feels like years ago. It wasn't. And Jay and I became best friends. Yada yada out a bunch he was a manager at a bakery and got me a job as a delivery guy and uh, the fraternity that him and I met in is a fraternity in New Haven it's not a secret society or anything like that it's just a college fraternity that got kicked off campus and now does everything uh, you know underground so to speak but it's interesting because they have a couple stories that interact with skull and bones you know being two fraternities in the same town, you know, they kind of had a, like assert themselves, I guess. So there was this whole concept of like stealing. Um, it's called crooking skull and bones. Does it, they go and they crook things. Right. And they go usually take like license plates and other like memorabilia type stuff. So I guess our fraternity had a ritual may or may not have had a ritual like that where we would go out and do something illegal. Um, and yeah, that one of, one of the groups of brothers that was way before my time had this weird night where they had a run in with skull and bones. And I remember that was one of the stories that they told us when we were like, when I was like a new guy in the fraternity and I was like, huh, that's weird. I know all about skull and bones and I thought immediately, oh, everybody's going to want to hear about my skull and bones stories. And they're all very, very quick to shut me up and tell me, no, we don't really care. It's just, you know, it's just something they were saying to scare me. They weren't like, and not me specifically, but the new guys, they weren't interested in it. You know, it was like a drinking fraternity. It wasn't like a intriguing fraternity. But anyways, I made some really good friends there and Jay was one of them. 
Jay got me a job at the bakery. The bakery had a contract with Yale. Next thing I know, I'm delivering bread inside of Yale because they're very unorganized with that kind of thing. And they're just like, yeah, just drop it off in the kitchen. You know, they don't have like a security guard to like bring it or something. Illuminati confirmed. Or you're walking yeah, around so, in Yale, bro. It's going bones. So I was walking. So I was walking around in Yale. I never got into the tomb or any of those secret society buildings beyond the old one. It's no longer a secret society building, but the Wolf's Head Lodge, I was inside of that. Um, but yeah, it's just weird, you know, how life like spins you full full circle. Like I, I met Amos, learned about Geronimo, and then next thing I know, I'm in the former home of George H.W. Bush on the day he died. Okay. So every, Illuminati confirmed. <laughs> so every Tuesday, I would drop off pastries at this one building. It called it's called the Economics Department. And funny enough, it used to be the home of George W. Bush when he lived in New Haven, because him and his son are both um, Skull and Bones members. Um, George H. W. Bush lived in New Haven when he when. George W. Bush was a young man, like a, a, a boy, actually, very young. Then they went to Texas, and that's how they got that whole cowboy persona. But originally, they're New Haven people. And um, I happened to be delivering pastries in this building the same day that George H.W. Bush died. And I don't really have anything else to add to that other than it's just strange, the timing but it was kind of a, a beautiful building, like the way it was furnished and the trim on the wall was all wood paneling, very nice, you know, carpets. And it's a very luxurious school. They have a lot of expensive stuff, but uh, that's kind of, you know, where the interest kind of like smacked me across the face. And that's when I got really serious about this podcast thing because, um, at that time, I, I was listening to Tinfoil Hat. I was listening to all these shows, and I was like, you know, I want to do a podcast. I got to do a podcast. I got to get myself in this somehow because I have something to add to it. I have something to say. I have, you know, I have stuff to share. And, yeah, after that, I started a podcast. It didn't go anywhere. We just did, like, a YouTube show for, like, eight episodes over the course of a few months. Uh, but then, yeah, then you know my whole story with Sam, how I met Sam, and then I, the first time I had an opportunity to talk to Sam on his Patreon, I talked to him about Skull and Bones. And, uh, yeah, full circle again. Now I'm talking about it and diving into it and working on a pretty big project where we're going to break it all down from the beginning to the middle to the end. Yeah, just be careful, bro, because obviously these are very powerful, influential people who... I mean, if that's not weird to anybody that a lot of the biggest names have come out of these secret societies, the fact that they're secret or even not, not even secret, they're not even secret, that they're exclusive, right? Certain family bloodlines that have walked through those doors, stayed there, interacted with the same people. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's weird. That, that's why the why the secrecy why the exclusivity why all that why 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 do you need to do all that because again it's a big club and you ain't in it and these guys are doing 
maybe they just want some, you know, a nice club to have friends and brothers in and just feel like a sense of home to them. But I think that it goes above and beyond that. I think that they are fucking with the metaphysical and they do think that by partaking in these rituals, they are unlocking powers within themselves. And and what do you have to say about the, that the skull and bones being on the pirate ship, the, the pirate flag as well? Cause that's also another aspect to this, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Jolly Roger is a part of uh, pirate culture and the people who, started skull and bones were definitely smugglers if not pirates as well yale was named after a governor of the british east india company a man named eli yale who on the phone earlier i was telling you that he can trace his lineage all the way back to of course royalty um in wales and then all the way back to Normandy and Italy Uh, and the Italian family that he's related to has some very, very big, big, deep connections. Um, I haven't really like fleshed that whole side of it out yet. So I don't quite want to tell you what I told you on the phone already. Not that I'm never going to talk about. I just want it to be more of like, uh, you know, one of the things that we get into with this project. So got to keep some things under wraps in order to Mm. tease people. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, you know, some of the major East coast establish establishment families who sent their sons into skull and bones made their money in the slave trade. They made their money then in the drug trade because when slavery became illegal, well, they had to devise a different way to have a body of people who would do their bidding. And that was the way was achieved by intoxicating them with drugs. And I think they first experimented with this, with the opium wars in China, where they got everyone in China all drugged up and used that as a way to take over Shanghai. Um, But it's possible, right? No, I'm sorry. Hong Kong, Hong Kong is, is still to this day, uh, somewhat a part of the British Empire, right? It's not technically a part of China. Uh, I think the communists took it back, but uh, but it is sort of like the window to the... It's like the bridge to the West, right? Hong Kong is like where a lot of expats go in China. So yeah, it goes deep. I know we're kind of coming on two hours here. We spent a lot of time talking about uh, a couple different things. But yeah, the the connections with Yale... They go way back. I mean, some of the, with with the drug smuggling and the piracy thing, you know, it goes way back. You know, Yale was, like I said, in the British East India Company. They were selling slaves. You know, they would bring all these slaves to New Haven, stand them right in that green where I was showing you on Google Earth earlier, and sell them off. Wow, that's, that's why there's, crazy, dude. Yeah, people think all, you know, it, like people think, it only happened in the South. No way, man. Shit was happening up here too. I mean, there's whole towns in uh, New England of, you know, slaves that left the South and came and found former slaves that were here in the North and they all 
kind of made their own little towns and of course had their own sides of towns. And then uh, during world war, they came world war two, they came in uh, after world war two rather they came and segregated all these groups with the highway planning, right? They went and like divided all of these places up and new Haven is no different. They did exactly that. I-91 and I-95 literally create like this divider line between Fairhaven, which is pretty poor, impoverished area, and Yale's campus, which has like million dollars homes and, you know, doctors live there, professors, like big time, big time money in Connecticut, you know, and not to mention Yale sort of innovated this practice of claiming state land for school research. So Yale has a lot of land that they own across the state of Connecticut and New England as well. I think they, for research purposes, own a bunch of stuff and other colleges took that practice up. And that's a big reason why a lot of the mounds were destroyed um, for research purposes, right? They would claim the land, smash the mound, pull all the stuff out of it, and then, take the stuff and hide it in some basement. And yeah. one of those basements is, is in new Haven. A couple of those basements are in new Haven. And I'm, I'm looking at an aerial view of Harvard and you can start seeing the different lines and the, the geometry and also the Jekyll Island where arguably they say that the federal reserve was born, right? The creature mm. of Jekyll Island, you have the Rockefeller cottage, that is built on the mound where it was allegedly an altar or a burial site. So I think that these elites are tapping into these vortexes uh, where either energy is harvested or these are centers where energy can be concentrated in some sort of way to be able to literally manipulate reality in itself. Mm. That, you know, well, what I'm showing, what, what I'm showing you here is the Deer Island Club. When you said Jekyll Island, I thought of Deer Island. And what's interesting about Deer Island is it's a skull and bones retreat that only the graduates from Yale, who are also parts of Skull and Bones, they're called the Patriarchs. They um, they graduate from Yale, and then they're able to go and visit their alumni friends at the club here on Deer Island. And Deer Island is in between the borders of New York and Canada in the uh, river that separates Canada and New York State right before it becomes the Erie, Lake Erie, right? So um, what's really interesting about Deer Island is it's a part of a chain of islands called the Thousand Islands chain. That's where the term Thousands Islands dressing comes from, like the salad dressing. It's not a Caribbean. Yeah, it's not Caribbean. It's actually from upstate New York, believe it or not. I, I When I first heard Thousand Islands, I'm like, oh, this is some kind of tropical dressing. No, not at all. It's from upstate New York. <laughs> it's pretty much Canadian. But uh, but wow. yeah, the in ancient times or more re- less recent times, those islands were known as the Islands of the Manitou, which for the Native Americans, most groups know that word, the Manitou. And it means like spirit or uh, demerge even, right? Demerge is kind of like a spirit. It's not 
same as what they meant when they said Manitou, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, it's like a tutelary spirit of some kind. Manitou did all kinds of things. They were like the elementals almost. Mm-hmm. They had they had the Wanakantanka, right? That's the creator. And then they had the Manitou. Manitou was like spirits that would help people, and it's like a good spirit. It, different tribes have different, you know, explanations for their spiritual beliefs and also the people recording these spiritual beliefs again were biased and not always the most uh, accurate so yeah we have several different names for Manitou Uh, it's pronounced differently some tribes don't even utter the word they'll only write it down so I hope I'm not offending anybody by saying it but yeah it is interesting that Skull and Bones has this fascination with conquering the Native Americans in this spiritual way, defeating them spiritually. And I think Yale is partly to blame for that, and that's why they would have an island in the Manitou Islands. And not to mention, New Haven itself is in a place where the Native Americans said that Hobomoko, basically like this big evil giant, he wasn't particularly evil, but he wasn't on the human side. He was this huge giant he didn't like humans. He didn't like anybody. He had a brother named Kitan, and Kitan was a giant as well. And Kitan and Hobomoko fought, and Hobomoko died and laid down on the ground and was covered by the earth and became the mountain known as Sleeping Giant Mountain, which is only a couple miles away from New Haven in the town north of it called Hamden. Um, Hamden Pig pig ham a den of ham the family crest of eli yale has a boar on it aka a pig or ham so anyways so they have this sleeping giant mountain and then they also have two other mountains that are very close to sleeping giant that are sort of in the same mountain chain and in those two spots we have one uh, where I showed you earlier on Google Earth, where there's the Mary Magdalene on top of the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. And then the that's the East Rock. And then what's called West Rock. And so there's East Rock, West Rock, and Sleeping Giant. Those that's are the, in Canada, like, Sleeping Giants in Canada? Connecticut. I'm trying to look for it. I'm trying to look for a picture. Type in Sleeping Giant Hamden. Hamden, Connecticut. Getting a bunch of other oh. shit around the world, but I'm not getting No, Sleeping Giant Hamden, Connecticut. You'll find it. Um, but yeah, and then on West Rock, they have this thing called the Judge's Cave, which is where these judges who were a part of uh, execution of King Charles, they fled from England and uh, hid in the colonies on top of this sacred mountain. So That's interesting. There's also a building here that looks kind of interesting, too, on the Hamden, Hamden State Park, Sleeping Giant State Park. The castle, you mean? Yeah, I mean, it looks weird. It's got like rows of three mm. windows. It's got spider, the the iron bars inside of the windows. There's no glass in the windows. It's just a window frame of stone. Uh, the iron bars have like spider sort of depictions of spiders, you know, just yeah, to like it. art style them up. So, yeah, that's interesting, the spider, but... Uh, as far as I know, Peter Shampoo told me that that was built by uh, the Citizens Brigade back before World War One. They were trying to like give people jobs after the Great Depression, mm-hmm. or 
after World War One. I. I don't remember exactly so what time period. Let's build this random tower right here. Yeah, let's just build this. Get a bunch of people to get busy and build this tower. Yeah, I think there's something to that. There's also another. Um, there's a there's a part of Sleeping Giant called uh, Abraham's Cave, and it's like interesting because a a man who was related to the famous Barnum from the Barnum and Bailey Circus fortune. Uh, forget his name. P. Barnum. Yeah. P. Barnum. I, he has a name. The first name I don't remember right now off the top of my head, but Barnum had pretty much like fame and fortune and had all these weird things that he was collecting. And his son or his nephew ends up dead inside of this cave in, in Sleeping Giant. So, yeah, and now it's remembered as Abraham's Cave, which seems like there's something more there that I haven't found. But, yeah, I, I don't think any of these things happen by accident from Deer Island to Sleeping Giant to, you know, the nine square grid that we talked about before. You also mentioned you know, hearing me discuss this on another podcast about how a group called the order of the file and claw broke into skull and bones and got a pretty good description of what the interior looked like. There's also been women who have allegedly dated men who are part of skull and bones who have taken pictures from inside. And I know it's probably a lot easier to, or probably a lot more difficult for them to stop women from doing that. So they probably just ban anyone that isn't uh, initiated from being in there altogether now that phones are so ubiquitous. But back in like the sixties and seventies, there's like a couple pictures of women that like, you know, tried to take their picture inside of skull and bones and who knows what happened to them or how those pictures ended up on the internet. But yeah, these guys, they, they broke in to the building. They drew schematics of what the building looked like. And this was, prior to its renovation. So when you Google image search the picture of Skull and Bones tomb, you'll find a building that's twice the size of what it used to be. So it used to look like this in this image right here. Um, sorry, this one right here. See this one right there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So see how it's kind of thin? Now they have a double, a doubled building size um, and that's because after there was a break in they went and renovated it and made it bigger and more secure and they for a fact know that that's Geronimo's skull and bones and what's on it Thor is that what that says on there where I'm seeing a picture you have an image pick you picked up an image yeah they they uh they for sure know that Geronimo's been taken there. Um, there's a couple different stories. The most damning evidence for me is the fact that the U.S. Army went and cemented over Geronimo's grave in Oklahoma and put this monument over it, making it impossible for anybody to actually go and see if his body is in there. And just think about that. Like, if... You know, if you look at what the Egyptians did and all these other cultures did to preserve the, the dead and leave the dead uh, with their belongings so that in the afterlife they would have their belongings. I mean, think about it. Geronimo's out there in the afterlife, headless, bro. He's a floating head, you know? 
Oh, he's but a body is, without a head because there was yeah. there's also a similar story uh to the Seminole tribe, either Seminole or Osceola. I, I think it's Osceola, where allegedly he is he is the you know the typical Indian man at these tobacco shops, like the mannequin. He is mm-hmm. the one that that's modeled after, like the typical indigenous person. And according to the to the story is that the doctor that was taking care of him before he died, after his funeral, he opened up his casket, cut his head off, and took his head to put it up on display in St. Augustine. And at this fort of Fort San Marcos, there is the legend that there is a headless corpse that walks around at night that you can see at night. And it's supposed to be Osceola terrorizing because he was held he was held as a prisoner there for a very long time along with other indigenous people but again this idea of having a relic from an indigenous person that gives that gives you some sort of power you have the relics of the saints right saint augustine you have his two wrist bones you know his two whatever bones here on your wrists you have that so like this idea that radial in your own the radio on your own yeah well there's it's like it's really weird because it's just like a tomb and then they just have those bones like you know what i mean so this idea that you can have these relics and they give i guess they give you power i'm not 100 sure why they would want to do some something like that but again we're hmm. dealing with people you know in the bible it says don't practice necromancy not because you, it can't be done but because it can be done so there's also that aspect to that as well where uh, you know, there are certain mixtures in the Bible that it, it warned against. So you have alchemy, you know, where you mix certain things together and you can come up with a whole bunch of different things. It's like, hey, don't mix these things up because it's forbidden. Well, why is it forbidden? Because things happen. You know what I mean? Like what happens? Well, don't do it because <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> so you have that idea as well. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, man, I, you know, like I said, this has been uh, really helpful for me. I feel like I was more organized than I expected to be, but it is like such a huge topic that every time I talk about it, new things come up. Like I've done this same conversation on Grimerica's show and the Macroaggressions podcast, so I'm really grateful that you asked me to come on here and share this stuff with you. And I can promise anyone who listened to this, that if you go and listen to those two shows, you'll hear other aspects of my research as well as some of the same things you heard already. But those were months ago. Now it feels like, so I've learned a couple things, new things since. And, uh, and yeah, man, I'm kind of a little tired to be honest. I don't know how much more I can do. Uh, I had a long day, but, um, but yeah, there's definitely like connections to the JFK assassination, Hitler, uh, the Nazis, CIA, obviously the first spy in American history, Nathan Hale, his statue is in New Haven. He was from New Haven. He was a graduate of Yale university and a member of one of the first secret societies because Yale had a whole wave of secret societies that existed before skull and bones, uh, Linonia, Cretonia and the brothers in unity. And these were debating societies. And back then the curriculum at Yale was based on the classics and it was based on the old Testament. 
So they were learning Hebrew. They were, yes, they were learning Hebrew and they were studying the Greek and the Roman cultures. So this idea of mystery schools obviously was very inspiring because they went and started all of their own mystery schools. And uh, yeah, I mean, they've done a good job of, of disguising these mystery schools. They called them debate societies and some of them became actual political uh, groups, you know, the political union, a lot of very influential people have been a part of Yale's political union. If you go and look that up on Wikipedia, like every single person on that list has their own Wikipedia page. And that should tell you something like how many schools have graduates where every student for the most part, eventually at some point in their <laughs> life has a Wikipedia page. I mean, come on, bro. Like, I, and I don't, I don't do all my research on Wikipedia, but that is a good, a great place to start. And I know there's a lot of Wikipedia haters out there, but uh, it is, it is uh, what it is. But I'll say that my research comes from the following books, just to be real sure and let people go and look for themselves as well. Uh, Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. Uh, this is put together by Chris Milligan, Anthony Sutton, Howard Altman, a couple other people are mentioned in there. And then, of course, America's Secret Establishment by Anthony C. Sutton. I could just keep pulling books up. I mean, this book helped a lot. Michael Hoffman's book, uh, multiple books. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, research to still be done. And uh, I appreciate you letting me come on here and, and share it, dude. Yeah, dude. I had never talked about Skull and Bones ever before. I had never, I had honestly never looked into it. It's very fascinating, everything you said. I think it was pretty organized, dude. I mean, and that's the nature of how a conversation goes every now and again. You know, I don't know if you listen back to a podcast and you're like, man, I should have said this about this because I remembered it while I was listening to it. But hey, it's part of, of the process. And I think I think it was great, bro. Really insightful, really interesting, especially, you know, when you start getting into all these elite clubs and secret societies and all that shit. It's like, why? You know, like you said, why New Haven? Why this place? And it's all laid out mathematically alchemically and they know what the fuck they're doing magically they know what the fuck they're doing and why they're doing it so it was really fascinating can you share with the listeners where they can find your podcast and look for you for those that stuck around this long and uh we'll wrap it up there mm, oh man i'm sure everybody's stuck around this long not even because of me but because you have a great show and it's a pleasure to do our own podcast together called illuminati confirmed we have a comic book that's coming out called The Chosen One surrounding, uh, you know, sort of like the the energy that we've created with Illuminati Confirmed. So I'm excited about that and where that goes. And, of course, one is a huge part of that comic book. It's called The Chosen One, which is dope. Uh, it was going to be called Illuminati Confirmed, but copyright prevented that. Um, so, yeah, check that out. I would love for more people to listen to that definitely gets as many listens as my other episodes though. Um, but I do the, my family thinks I'm crazy podcast. I have another podcast with Michael Wan called your handbook for the apocalypse. And I also do a podcast called the free thinker society with Mike Romanelli. So doing a bunch of different things. Uh, I have a new podcast on the way 
with the homie Romy. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be exciting. Uh, I don't know how frequently we'll do it, maybe once a month to start, but it's a really cool concept. And uh, yeah, I don't think there's any other podcast like it. So, and same thing with Illuminati Confirmed. I mean, I, I love doing, you know, different types of shows and learning how to do this podcast thing in a variety of ways, you know, because the way I am on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, it's a lot different than how I am on uh, Illuminati Confirmed. And, you know, same is true for you, right? So if people want to see one more laid back, uh, come and listen to our show, Illuminati Confirmed, which you can find here on the one-on-one podcast feed. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I, I let loose there and it's always fun, dude. Oh, you can come on whenever you'd like. Always, always fun to talk to you. And I think we talk on the phone a lot. A lot of our conversations could be podcasts on their own, but we're not always recording. Well, that that's the difficulty with this conversation <laughs> is like, I'm so used to just like bullshitting with you on the phone that like, I almost felt like I was doing that right now, like today. And then I had to like, be like, no, Mark, stop. Like you're on a podcast like be be more on it so apologize to you and and everybody if i felt a little more laid back i know this topic deserves accuracy and being on top of it but i can't help it hanging out with Juan is so fun i always just chill and yeah we got into it today from an angle that i haven't gotten into it before i've been learning a lot about like all of these really strange religions lately they're not strange but they're strange to me uh calvinism protestantism puritans like i'm trying to learn as much as i can about all those religions because i think there's like occult aspects to them Mm -hmm. uh calvinism for sure has some occult ritual magic stuff included in it and then like the amish i don't know if you know this but they're like amish powwows they call them and it's like this type of magic that they do and all of the all the Amish have these like sigil paintings on their barns, like they're these sort of hexagramal designs, and they make them into blankets and all kinds of stuff. And it's supposed to like ward off evil. And yeah, it's very interesting. There is like this deep magic culture, and the Amish. Why I brought them up, not randomly, but because they were colonists too, you know, and they're kind of like this microcosm that hasn't changed much since those times and we can analyze their culture today and get a glimpse at what maybe the puritans in new england were like back then i mean we didn't really even get into the witch trial stuff but you know from your parsons research that that's a big part of new england's history as well so uh yeah i have a lot more to learn on this subject and uh that's good for the listeners because there's a big project coming out soon and and uh, yeah, I know Ron's going to be a part of it in some shape or fashion. So awesome. you'll hear about it here. <laughs> it was a pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much, man.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.